0: If you would be turning in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7, we're going to read 7, one through eight six, which is not listed in your... It's just bonus material. Uh, it's post-Christmas gift to you. Uh, and so we're, I'm going to read that here in just a moment. But I want to remind us that this chapter uh, brings a lot of things together. And one of the things that it answers is the question that we were left with at the end of chapter 6. When the Lord comes in, in the Lamb's wrath and the earth is quaking, and people are saying, may the mountains fall on us, let us not be exposed to the holiness of, of God in the victorious Lamb, who can stand? Well, this answers that question. It also helps us to understand what it means to be the church church both militant and in the future triumphant in the world. There are some things that we need to learn from what we're going to see that should remind us of Ephesians chapter 6. What does it mean to put on the whole armor of God and what does that look like? What does it mean to, to be able to speak in power and glory and how should we navigate those things and think about those things? And so Um, as we read, be, be thinking about those things, be looking for where some of those questions are answered. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Revelation chapter 7, 1 through 8, 6. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a louder voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels we standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in the white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire, and from the altar threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All right, so as we step into uh, this chapter again, we have to remember from whence we have come and that we uh, we remember some of the key things that we want to take away from the book of Revelation. There's a, a lot of different things that people get tangled up in about the book of Revelation, but what's most important that you take away is that God is sovereign over all of history. If, you, if we don't have that, then we're in trouble. No matter how you would read Revelation, it would not be good news at all if God is not sovereign. Over all of history. If everything is not in his control, uh, which for those of us who, who come out of the postmodern and wrestle with radical anti theism, I am numbered among you, brings up a whole host of other questions about suffering and, and who's in control of certain things. But ultimately, God must be in control. Otherwise, the forces and principalities and powers of evil and darkness will destroy you completely. Remember, the project for Satan is you you can have no image bearer left. Even a sinful image bearer is an affront to Satan. Did you know that? Even just as a sinner, as long as you have breath in your lungs, you still are a radical offense to Satan himself. Why? Because you've not lost the image. You're still an image bearer. One of the great quotes C.S. Lewis has is you've never met an ordinary person. Everybody is, 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 is full of eternity. Andrew Peterson has a song where he talks about uh, the, a particular guy in Louisville looking out at the crowd and just being in awe and wonder at how many different ways the image of God is born. And he says these words. He says, Lord, I want the eyes to see as that man sees. And I do too. And times, there's times it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to see it sometimes even in ourselves. But do remember that the image of God is not predicated upon you. It is just you. It is in you. You may not live up to it very well. You may tarnish it. You may muddy it up some, but you cannot do away with it, and that is good news. And It's also important for you to understand that Satan doesn't care one whit about you and doesn't mean to make your life better. In fact, he has to destroy you to get where he's going. And so it is important for us that we recognize if these are two yin-yang type powers, if this is Star Wars... We're in trouble, right? And so so God must be sovereign over all history. So we have to have that. And then we must understand that the lion of Judah, full of power and glory and ability, chooses to come as the slain lamb. And that is so informative for us as to how we, the church, are to interact with the world. We must remember that this is the upside-down nature of the kingdom. If we approach Revelation 7 with anything other than the understanding of the upside-down nature of how Christ does what he does, we will get it utterly confused and not know what it is we are to do between the now and the not yet. And so we must remember that the line of Judah chooses to come as a slain lamb, and we must remember that the church has been invited into all this work. Now, what tools are we to take up? Well, that's, this chapter is going to help us a bit. We've heard a good bit of this before. We talk a lot about the means of grace here at Christ Community Church. And I agree with you. There's times where it's hard to believe, how does this, does this really work? Especially when God is so patient. How many of you have been praying for family members for years? How many, of you, how many of you have been longing for something to change and give in any circumstance, whether it's relational, job, school, whatever it may be? And so you're going, this is, how does this, is this really working? But, but the problem is I think we don't understand how prayer works. Prayer really is about changing us more into the image of God, and that sometimes occurs slow and low over time. It's not a cosmic candy machine. And we're pushing back against the darkness in ways that we don't even begin to understand. And so we have to, in humility, recognize that we submit to the sovereign Lord and the slain lamb to whom all of creation worship and falls down. We too must do the same in trust, in faith. So as we step into this chapter, again, we're being reminded of that straight away. Notice what it says from the very beginning. He says, after, after, and, and pay attention to how John uses his senses. That's going to be very important to how we understand a particular turn in the chapter. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. No wind might blow on the earth or sea or against my tree. And that imagery comes from the book of Zechariah. We've mentioned it before, especially with the four horsemen. It goes on and says, And from the rising of the sun, with the, there's an angel from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the tree until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Notice the sovereignty of God. Right? In chapter 6, we saw these four riders kind of cut loose on the earth. Right? It was the sin of the world given not even its full breath. You do remember that only a fourth of the earth was cut down by the last rider. Why? Because God said it would only be that much and no more. And notice here what he's, what's happening is, is the Lord essentially has said, until my people are sealed, you, you can't harm them. Well, that should be great news to us. Again, just evidence of God's sovereignty that what he has elected, however large he has determined the family to be, and let me pause here and say, it's always larger than we would imagine. Like, the only way you can go to get bigger than what God does is be a universalist, and that's problematic. But God is always patient and longs for the family to be bigger and, dare I say, stranger than we can imagine. right? And so, so he chooses some pretty interesting people, does he Not? Hello, <laughs> standing up here. Uh, and so, uh, so he is sovereign over that. Now, there's a, there's a lot of questions we could ask about that, like when is the ceiling and when does all this happen? It, that, that could be gotten to and may be important, but b- before we get there, let's, let's at first make sure that we understand the sovereignty of God in ensuring that his people will come in. Now, why is that good news to us who pray for the lost? Family members, children. Right? Why is that good news to us? Because it ensures that uh, God will have his way with his people. Now, you may say, well, then why pray? Let me remind you again, prayer is less about you moving God as lever and your heart being transformed from stone to flesh. If we prayed with that more in mind, I think it would change the language of our prayer. And so this good news of God's sovereignty is helpful to us, even though it may raise a host of other questions. And then he goes through, and, and this number has been used in a bunch of weird ways. You have the 144,000, right? Which uh, some, some heretical denominations have taken to mean something. They've had to change the number because they got bigger than the number. I get it, it's troublesome. Uh, but, but here, remember, numbers in the book of Revelation, while maybe not always symbolic, it is symbolic here, and there's a reason we're going to know that. Notice what it, what it says here in terms of John's senses. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Next, we're going to hear him say, if you drop down to verse 9, After this, I looked and behold. So he heard that there was going to be the complete and perfect number of God's elect. But when he looks out on that crowd, he realizes, well, wait a minute, I, I couldn't number these people. And what you notice if you've studied at all the tribes, there's a tribe missing. That tribe is Dan. Now, why is Dan missing from this list? Dan Widener, it's not you personally. Not everyone named Dan is of the tribe of Dan. But Dan, <laughs> Dan is missing, Why? Well, if you know anything about the history of Israel, they were the idolatrous tribe. They chose to go into idolatry, and there's a great cost. So what does that tell us? God's grace is not to be trifled with. He is still just. God's grace is to be enjoyed. God's grace is to be worshipped. God's grace is to be celebrated. But it is not to be presumed upon or trifled with. It can be costly. Now, the order in which they're in may be significant. Uh, the way, when tribes are listed all throughout the Old Testament, they're listed in about 18 to 20 different ways. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it does seem interesting that Judah is first. That may be indic- indicative uh, and to remind us of the, the fact that Christ is the line of the tribe of Judah and that the scepter was to never depart from that tribe. And so uh, what we have here is this mean that they are only Jewish people in No, what he's doing is tying together covenant knots to make sure that we understand that this is one story. You can't lop off the Old Testament. It's not that the Jews got it wrong, therefore they got kicked out, right? That's why we read Isaiah 54, is he reminds them, I love you. You are my people. That's why Paul goes to great lengths in that that section of Romans that we all kind of aren't too sure about sometimes, but 10 through 12 or or 9 through 12, where he makes it clear, they're not, I'm not done with them. This isn't, this isn't, I have not cast them off forever. They are my people. Now what we do with that? Well, it's not for us to do. He is the electing, saving God, but trust him in his sovereignty that he will have his way. But what it tells us is that we all came from Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. and it's tying that knot together in full for us. But notice, again, why we can say it's not just Jews he's talking about because he hears of the gathering of the tribes, this perfect number, and then he turns and he looks. And notice what he beholds. He says, And behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, now, it ties together with the Abrahamic covenant that we would be like the sand of the sea. the number of God's people will far exceed our wildest imaginations. And like I said, it'll be a stranger family than we thought. And he goes on to say from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne before the Lamb. Now what that tells us is that God doesn't uniquely choose one race, one tribe, one tongue. He loves them all. And longs for the family to be made up of those from the elect from them all, and that should be something that is concerning to us, right? It should be something that we care about. It's one of the reasons why, in faith promise, we try to support a variety of things—not just one area, one situation, one bucket, one part of the world—and um, so we we like to have as diverse a profile as we can within that. And so we we want to be a people who care about the nation. And I get it. Some of us are more uh, more pulled in one direction or the other toward one people group or the other. That is beautiful in the sovereignty of God. You're not gonna, you in and of yourself aren't gonna love everybody equally. But, but you should care that the family look diverse, be diverse. It should be something that we genuinely care about, because God does. And for those of you who've experienced multi-ethnic worship or situations of that nature, it is particularly beautiful, but it is not easy between the now and the not yet because of style, because of all any host of things. But it is something that we should still pray for, right? In the great hilarity of God, the hardest thing we could think to do, we should just pray for. And as the Lord leads, make decisions that help, help that come into fruition and being so that people could see a little bit of something on earth as it will be in heaven or is in heaven. And notice what he says that these folks are clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What in the world do they need palm branches for? Is Jesus hot? Is it hot up there in heaven? He need to be fanned off? No, what do the palm branches point us back to? Well, it should call to mind the triumphal entry of Jesus as he is going into Jerusalem and they are crying out these words, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. See, they are worshiping a king. And this is telling us that the the lamb is triumphant. Slain though he is, the lion of Judah is victorious. And he is being worshiped even now uh, as king. That reign is not set for the future, it is now. He reigns now, and that's something that we should live in light of, the reign of Christ. I do remember the words from Hebrews chapter 2, so honest, so beautiful. He reigns, even though there are times it just doesn't look like it. There are times it just, it just doesn't. It doesn't look like Christ is in charge of anything, whether it's you get a diagnosis, a family member gets a diagnosis, some cannonball blows through your life of some kind, or a country, or depending on who and where we are, there's there's all manner of things that are trying to convince us that Christ doesn't reign, right? You've got to understand that is step one for Satan. He's got to convince you that you are lost in a meaningless world over which God is not sovereign and Christ does not reign. And so we as the people of God must continually fight to keep those two truths foremost in our hearts and minds because it is the reality. And so as they are celebrating him, notice what they cry aloud. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, Ed, again, that declaration of God's sovereignty and the victory of the Lamb himself. They declare those things. It says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And notice how they respond to this declaration by this great multitude of people. What do they do? But they fall down on their faces before the throne and they worship God saying to that truth, amen. Now, do we say amen to that truth? That salvation truly belongs to the Lord? Well, let me confess to you that, that I, I don't always say amen to that. And you may say, well, dude, get off the stage and go go do uh, siding work. I, I'm, I'm now into vinyl siding, if any of you need help. I'm an expert after one day. No, you don't need me. Uh, and so, so... I get it, but I'm just being honest with you. I don't trust the means of grace all the time either. I don't always trust God to do what he said he would do. I don't always trust him to finish the story like he said he would finish it, right? There are times that I rise up in my own strength and usually here's how it goes if we're being honest, right? I rise up in my own strength, not even in faith, but is it if I could rip myself out of the very hand of God. You know what he's so gracious to do? not let me go. And to confront me with something in the middle of all that uh, angst, that Gen X angst, which we were so famous for and patented, right? Uh, And and he just, he shows up again and again. He's so good to be faithful. And it's starting to dawn on me, well, maybe I should stop doing that and start doing this, right? Salvation belongs to the Lord who sits on the throne and to the Lamb that I would walk in greater reality of that, that our church would be a church that that is what we declare. And and there's so much being said there. You you, you have to see that. It's not just a a throwaway statement. When it says salvation belongs to, what does that mean? It means it's not on us. We've been invited to participate in what he's already decided he's going to do. I don't know how the math works either, but I'm glad it's true so that it doesn't depend on me. I don't know how your Christmas went, but mine was a mixed bag. And no matter how hard I tried to make it work, I couldn't do it. I couldn't make it right in my own strength. And in fact, the harder I tried, guess what happened? The weirder it got. And so salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is good news to us because it is not incumbent or that crown of thorns is not ours to wear. Amen? And, as if that weren't enough, to the Lamb. Which we're going to see is the chief shepherd. Which that language is so important. Did you, did you notice what it said in Matthew 2? Why did Christ come? To be our Shepherd? Well, that means something. Those are important words that we shouldn't just cast off. Psalm 23 should come immediately to our minds. What a great gift that within the word of God is, is so beautiful an explanation. Even Christ declares himself the chief shepherd. What does a shepherd do? I love that the psalmist says, for those for whom he is not the shepherd, death is their shepherd. That's just a warning to us. I don't want death to be my shepherd. I don't want death to be the the definitive thing, right? And so, so here what we see is when they say salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lamb, that is a statement worthy of our meditation and of our consideration and of us wrestling with and maybe even saying once in a while. Because notice how heaven responds. They break out in worship. Not dissimilar to when one lost sheep comes home, right? Notice, why, why does heaven party? Well, we should take notes. There ought to be things we celebrate better than we do. There ought to be things that we get more excited and have greater zeal for than we do. And so, so here we see worship is sparked by this grand declaration of sovereignty and goodness, And notice what they go on to say after their declaration of Amen, which bookends what they say in between. Blessed and glory, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our God forever and ever. We could do a whole series on just studying why each of those words is of of great importance. They are ascribed to the Lord our God. We don't have time this morning, but it is something that would be worthy of you taking time to study. If salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lamb is such a grand statement. Why? Why those words? Why those words attributed to the Lord our God? And it goes on, it says, Then one of the elders addressed John and he said, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where where have they come? Now it's interesting, why, why do you think the elder would interrogate him? Because sometimes it's just important for us to have to answer the question. Did the elder not know? Well, how does John respond? Well, you know. He says, sir, you know. I don't think it was said like some teenager speaking back to their parent here. Uh, I, I just think he's, he's, he's in deference and humility saying, sir, you know. And notice what he says. This, is, we, we, this has caused a lot of problems in Christianity, this, this next phrase. Uh, because we take it, uh, I would argue, way out of context. He says, and so he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Q, Tim LaHaye, and Jerry B. Jenkins. What great tribulation? You mean greater than life in this fallen world? M- more than just the, your garden variety hatred of Christianity that goes on every single day? More than living under the weight of sin and death. Something real specific that you want to, like, you want to figure out what the code is. You want to make sure you don't get the wrong thing stamped on your hand. Like, you don't want to watch the wrong Netflix account. Like, what? I don't know. But, But no, that's not what this is talking about. This is just talking about the great tribulation that is life between the now and the not yet. The fact that it is not right yet. And these are folks who have been obedient unto death. Remember the cry of the martyrs in the fifth seal. And so the great tribulation is just separation from God. It is life in a fallen world as much as anything else. Are there particular times when it is rough, whether it's under Domitian or Nero or for the folks that are suffering throughout the world? In fact, a number of Christians were beheaded in Nigeria just this Christmas. Christians have been crucified in the last five years in what was once Chad. Uh, Christianity is not an easy thing to do in China. What we're doing here this morning, we take way for granted compared to the way it is in a lot of the world. You think you could just set up a church in Morocco? It'd be not. Nice. It's beautiful there, but no, you cannot. Cuba, right? So, so let's not take for granted. We're not the only Christians, by the way. And so the the principalities and powers are truly hostile to the church. And I would make the argument that maybe the heat isn't that strong on us because we're, we're so fat and happy we couldn't care less most of the time. Satan doesn't have to do a whole lot with us. We're not praying anyway. We're busy, right? We build stuff. We have programs. We do lots of stuff. I'm not sure we would get accused of being prayer warriors. I don't think we're filling up the censer up there. My hand's raised. So I'm not throwing stones at anybody. I don't live in a glass house entirely. And then he goes on to say, these are the folks who have come out of the tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Been, that's true. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That it is Christ who has redeemed them, that it is his blood that has made them that uh, has, has reconciled them to the Lord their God. And notice what he goes on to say, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. This should call to mind where the psalmist says, better is one day in your, in your courts, Lord, than a thousand elsewhere. I'm not sure, I don't, I don't know that's us, right? We're like, uh, but better is, is an hour and 15 minutes than an hour and 30, Even better, is just an hour. <laughs> if, we can, if we can get all that means of grace stuff in in 60 minutes, efficiency is really important to us. We're way more concerned about that than, did we actually honor the Lord? Did we, did we actually get down to the business of declaring salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lamb? Did we say that sufficiently enough? I remember Sam Larson telling a story about uh, he, he was preaching in Kenya and he had prepared three sermons and wasn't sure which one he was going to do when he went. So he gets up and he delivers the first sermon and everybody's gathered from all around. And he, and he gets done. And he goes to sit down and the guy's like, whoa, 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 what you doing, man? That was only 45 minutes, your sermon only. And so Sam's like, all right. All right. So he preaches the next one because he had it with him. And that's now we're an hour and a half in, and he goes to sit down. And the guy's like, "Oh, it's like it's not enough. You will offend them if you end here. They walked longer than what you have preached thus far to be here. Don't dishonor that." So Sam gave him the other forty-five minutes, knowing he had to figure out another forty-five and. Fortunately, if you remember Sam Larson, that guy had sermons on sermons on sermons. And so he could have gone on for a while, but he he went on for almost three hours. Take heart. That's not where you are. Uh, I get it. Um, But my point is this do we have, I mean, we we have to check ourselves about hunger. We have to ask ourselves what is it, what is the true measure of, of, of our Zealousness for Christianity. What is, what, is, what is this that we are called to gather and do and be? And has that business been done? Right? Too often, we're way more concerned with whether or not we as individuals were moved or pleased or the right songs were sung in the right keys from the right centuries in the right ways and we're, or what I did. Don't make it about me. That will get you nowhere. I am a terrible God. Instead, the question we should always ask when worship is approaching its closure is, Lord, were you pleased with what we did here today? Did we sufficiently declare individually and collectively that you are Lord and salvation belongs to you alone? This is what we see them doing and what we ought learn. And notice they are so overjoyed to be able to just worship before the throne. And it goes on, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Again, all that comes from the, uh, from the Old Testament, all that imagery of the, in the shadow of his wing, uh, that he would block the sun from harming them, the moon from harming them. All of that is one of the great promises of God that his presence is our shelter. He is a strong tower to whom we should run. And it goes on to say, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Now the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. What a great gift that we would not be left to the elements anymore, not left to our desires anymore. I don't know about you, but I am so weary at times of my own inability to show any sort of, whether it's self-control, like if you sit out charcuterie I'm eating it all. It's not even about clearing a plate. It's about clearing a platter, right? Uh, And I just, I don't have, I I got issues. And so I I long for the day when I'm not bound to uh, those things anymore, where I'm not bound to wondering more about meals than people. And so they get to experience the great presence of the Lord as gifted them and notice this promise fulfilled, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. What do you need a shepherd for in heaven? Because it's not just about being protected, it's about being loved. And notice what he does for them, and this so resonates with me coming out of the holiday season. And He will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Uh, We are Jennifer Stucker and I were talking about this at the door. It was uh, um, just over a year ago that my uh, parents passed away and I confess i 've just not grieved it, now's not the time to do that uh, but but i haven't and it hit me so strong this holiday season that, that i I'm, I'm, I am ill prepared to 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 deal with this, and it is going to eat me alive if i don't and our whole family has got on that side, has some issues that we need to we need to work through an address, but I'm so long for the day when, when, when death won't have the impact that it has, when sin won't have the impact that it has, when, when we will weep no more and, and Christ will be our shepherd. And so notice that that great vision should say something to us about how the church is to engage some things. Notice this as the seventh seal comes open. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, this is uh, Revelation 8, 1. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So whatever's going on with the seventh seal, it caused all of heaven to pause its worship and be silent. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Let me remind you from the book of um, Joel that the trumpets were often a, a sign of judgment coming, that it was often used to declare that the Lord was being roused and coming forth. And then it says, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints uh, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire, and from the altar threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, Flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So, what is it that caused all that? The prayers of the saints were used as part of how God will deal with making all things new. And so, one of this, the things that this teaches us is that one of the single greatest weapons that we have in our arsenal as the church militant that will be the church triumphant is prayer. And, and it is one of the most pleasing things to the Lord our God. Did you notice as part of the worship that it rises as an incense and aroma? This is one of the things I think we lose in, in the Protestant church is we don't address the senses very well, right? And I get it. I mean, for some of us are, are smell sensitive and that it could be a difficult thing, but it is something that is lost, as part of our worship, that the senses are not engaged in the same way that they are in other churches that do that pretty well. But for the Lord, it is always rising and it is the prayers of the saints that he finds most pleasing. Notice what's not mentioned here. Your deeds. Where do we place the emphasis? Well, interestingly, we place it on deed, but we don't do much but we do more deeds probably than pray, on average. And what we're being told here is that the greater fight, the greatest way that we, the church, between the now and the not yet, can push back against the darkness is to declare salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lamb and to do that in prayer, assailing the the very throne room of heaven on behalf of, of this fallen world. And it is, it is for the lost that we must pray. It is for those who are suffering that we must pray. It is for the church that we must pray. It is for God's glory that we must pray. We have a, a, a litany of things we can pray for. So one of the things that we have coming in the new year um, is, uh, and many of you got a, a copy of the book. If you did not receive a copy of Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney and you would like a copy, please see me. I think I have about 10 left uh, in a box in my car. Um, But we're going to do a Sunday school class on the 19th and the 26th. I think I have that right. Uh, I'll be leading that on that book. It's it's about an 80-page book. It's a super quick read, but has been phenomenally helpful. Those who took the leadership cultivation course, if you need their testimony as to the value of that book, please see any one of them. Interestingly, uh, you may be thinking, what a perfectly Presbyterian thing to do. Give us a book. Well, I gave you a short one that was easy to read, but it's going to get us to do, hopefully do the thing that matters the most, which is pray. Because one of the great barriers to prayer is we feel like we don't have the language or we feel like we're saying the same thing over and over. When God has so wonderfully given us, not just the Psalms, but the Psalter is a great place to learn how to pray well using the language of Scripture, and there's, the whole Bible actually is prayable, uh, even some of the hard parts. And so we'll have that Sunday school class. In addition to the Sunday school class, there's a men's group that meets on um, Tuesday mornings that'll start up in, uh, in January. Uh, I can't remember the exact date. Off 16th maybe it's kind of in my head somewhere. That's the Thursday group. Starts the 16th, that means the Tuesday group starts the 14th because they start the same week. So there's a Tuesday group that meets in Marietta, Daily Grind. There's a men's group that meets on Thursdays. Uh, um, that starts that same week at the Chick-fil-A in Stockbridge. Uh, I'm sorry, not Stockbridge. That is a long way to go. <laughs> I used to meet with people at Chick-fil-A in Stockbridge. God bless them. But this one is actually in Woodstock. And, so, and so, Joe was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. When, when did we move it to Stockbridge? We're expanding our footprint here. Uh, and, so, and so if you would like to, to join that group uh, and, and go through it with us, we'll, we'll We have a study guide for that. For those who would like to lead some other people through it, men, women, mixed, whatever, I do have a study guide. If you would like a copy of it, just let me know. But all that to say that one of the great uh, things that we've we've wanted to grow in always is prayer. That's a perpetual thing, so that'll be a particular emphasis over the next few months through that book, Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney, and like I said, it is easy. You don't, if, if you're like, I don't know if I could lead a group, no, grab the book, grab the study guide. You can do it. I'll help you in any way that I can. Uh, but we want to be a people who grow and, and craft that particular ability because it is the main tool in our arsenal. It shapes both us and the world. And so the thing that we need to make sure that we understand is that the ways in which the world chooses to exude and, and use its power is not the way the church should. And yes, I get it. It's upside down. And yes, I get it. It takes a while. And yes, I get it. It feels strange to talk to somebody uh, somewhere above the ceiling. But that's not an excuse not to grow in it. That's not an excuse not to, to when, especially when the Lord has given us the language already. So this is a real opportunity for us and I would love to see our church grow in its zeal and faith and love for one another and for the things of the kingdom and for this to be a place of great joy Um, and that we would be authentic in that and that the means of grace would continue to be very important to us. Listen to what Michael J. Gorman says about this this part of Revelation. He says, according to Revelation, we have been, been redeemed from a culture of death by the death of the Lamb for faithfulness to death, all of which is paradoxically life itself. It is also victory itself. It is is conquering the temptation to give up or give in even in the face of all that the culture of death can do. So how does God's promised eternal preservation of his people and Christ's shepherding ministry affect how you live out the gospel and your spheres of influence for the life of the world. Said another way, how does the sovereignty of God and the victory of the lamb and the ministry of that to his people, the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord alone, how does that affect how you live out? And you may not have an answer to that question just yet because you may haven't thought about it, but you should. We should think about these things. Revelation 7 helps us understand that God will eternally preserve people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to be ministered to by Christ, their loving shepherd. And we've been invited into that work primarily through prayer. We do get to do the deeds sometimes, and that's a wonderful thing. But our deeds ought to be covered in prayer. Our deeds ought to cause us to pray more. And what a gift that we get to, on a day when we've been challenged with these things, to declare physically, tangibly, with our senses, that salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lamb. What a gift that we get to be nourished in our faith through the Holy Spirit, that we are brought before the very throne of grace through this that makes so little sense, right? If you think about it, of all the things that Christ could have done to remember him, why this one? Well, probably so we'd ask that question and so it would be common elements that we would have uh, at our disposal, that we would have a, an easy means by which we could remember that the Lord is God and that he cares about all things, that he is involved in all things. And so if, Chris, you come on down. Philip, is Philip Lucas in here? Yep, come on down. So as we, we receive the elements this morning, uh, would you ponder how they declare, how it helps you to declare and remember That salvation belongs to the Lord. That that it is is the Lamb who is victorious. That it is God who is sovereign. It is by your prayer that you've been invited. And so, uh, before we take, let me just say one thing. Why is Chris Byerly up here? Well, originally we didn't think Tim was going to be here this morning, and so uh, just I'd already invited Chris to do it. A deacon can help serve, by the way. The BCO allows for that. For those of you who are wondering, just in case, uh, we got it covered. And uh, if you try to get the one from Chris's hand, it'll be sweeter, I promise. But in lieu of that, uh, with that taken care of, let's remember what ought be remembered, which is what Christ called for us to remember on the night that He was having that wonderful and interesting and mysterious meal with his people that he loves so dearly. And they knew so little about what was going on, and yet he said to them, he said this, and he took bread as part of the meal. He said, this is my body given for you. Think about all that that statement means, that he gave his body for us, so that all those mistakes you've made, all that sin you've committed, past, present, and the ones you'll commit in the future. I don't know how the math works either, but I'm glad it's true. All that shame and guilt, all that stuff you've messed up, all the stuff you've gotten wrong, his body, more than sufficient to ensure that that would not be eternal. Now, that's important. It doesn't mean it doesn't have earthly consequences, right? It doesn't mean that we don't have to wrestle with it between the now and the not Yeah, It doesn't mean that the devil doesn't grab a hold of it and whisper low sometimes. Who do you think you are, image bearer? What a joke. Now, this declares, no, salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lamb. Well, that's good news for us is it doesn't depend on us before, middle, or after. Now, that doesn't mean that gives us a license to act a fool or or be more sinful. No, it gives us license to worship to say amen, blessings, and honor, and glory, and thanksgiving, and power, and might to our God. So if you're not a believer, this meal's not for you. Let it pass you by. If, you, if you've not yet made a, a credible profession of faith in a local church, you need to let it pass you by. If you, for some reason, are under church discipline in your church, I know of no one in this category, you need to let it pass you by as well. And there's one more. If you have unforgiveness in your heart towards someone else as if you were God and could declare that to be so, that is not for you to declare. It may not be easy. Reconciliation may be hard. It may be almost impossible given the other party. But on your part, you should long for it and pray for it always. So if you are harboring unforgiveness, you need to let this pass you by. And even more importantly, work to make that right. Come talk to us. We'd love to help you through that process but for everybody else who claims Jesus as savior, who knows that they are a sinner who is in desperate need of God's grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, who can say salvation belongs to the Lord and to the lamb. You take and eat, but hold until we can take and eat together as family, as an even more wonderful declaration that this is not about us just purely as individuals. And meditate on what it means that the body of Christ has been given for you. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ was given for us. Thank you that our sin and shame and guilt and mistakes and failure to pray doesn't have eternal consequence for us. But, But Lord, help us to be nourished by this bread and the power of the Holy Spirit that we would be emboldened because of what we know to be true of us in union with Christ, that we would so long for others to have that that we would become a praying people, that we would be dependent upon you and the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.